Stay up on the real culture of Detroit by tuning in to the Detroit is Different Podcast Network weekly. Music, art, business, comedy, and never-before-told stories from the people of Detroit. My Natural Hair is a podcast that shares all the information you're looking to learn about natural hair. The movement, the styles, growing your hair naturally and meeting other people, part of the natural hair culture and movement. My Natural Hair is hosted by LaDonna Sims and Markeisha St. Clair from Hair Goals 313. Collectively, LaDonna and Markeisha have over 25 years of experience doing natural hair. Black Coffee is a podcast hosted by Kari Frazier and Frida Sampson Weekly. Weekly, Frida and Kari welcome guests to discuss the rich history of Black leadership, entrepreneurship, artistry, and social justice. Tune in weekly to the Piper Carter Podcast with Piper Carter for a conscious take on music, arts, politics, and fashion. The founder of We Found Hip Hop has a say on what you should know about culture with a balanced conscience. You're listening to the Black Coffee Podcast on the Detroit is Different Podcast Network. All right, all right. So we are here honoring the legacy of Fred G. Sampson. This is Kari Frazier for the first time. Reverend Haynes in full effect. And I'm sure that's Dr. Haynes as well. Yes, sir. All right. So um, Frida brought this event together. Uh, She spoke highly of the work you've been doing. Uh, When I think about Reverend Sampson as I'm a person that just grew up in the neighborhood in Detroit, connected to Reverend Sampson, went to Northwestern High School. So that was the neighborhood of uh, where his church was. So a lot of like the old guys, as we call them, like the OGs in my hood that definitely did not walk through church doors often. all looked up to Reverend Sampson because right. his uh, relationship with the community was right. a lot different than, um, than a lot of people, period, that you think um, are of the word. When I think about Reverend Sampson, just like the whole community uh, rallied around him as he rallied around so many people in the community. He'd right. be at McDonald's. You'd see him walking down the street. You'd see him interacting and engaging um, on just different ways that you wouldn't expect somebody that's traveled the word world, someone that as uh, is well read, someone that has access to you know so many sitting presidents. So now I've learned he has like a, 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 a litany of sons and people that he mentored, and you're one of these people. Oh yeah. So uh, let's talk a little bit about Reverend Sampson to you. What does he mean? Wow. The question is where to begin, so I'll go, I guess, back to the beginning. Uh, I met Doc. I grew up in San Francisco, and he would come to San Francisco as the guest for what was called the Citywide Revival, and I'm a kid, what, 12, 13, 14 years old, and man... I just went to church because, you know, I was supposed to. My dad was a pastor, the host, so I get there. This man comes in, and I've never had anyone grab my attention through preaching the way he did. And he grabbed my attention because, I mean, he knew how to break it down, but at the same time, you know, it's like he made intelligence sexy. And the more I heard him recite poetry... Uh, deal, grapple with ideas, and then speak to our social conditions, I'm like, man. And again, I'm 12, 13, 14, and I'm smart in school, 
but to be smart in school back in the day was like, okay, you a geek, you a nerd, nerd. and all that yes. stuff. Yes. And so, but here I see someone who is beyond smart, brilliant, intelligent, mm -hmm. and I'm like, so that's what I'm trying to do. Mm -hmm. And so, so to, to see him blew my mind. And then, it's just like you're saying, the cat's in the street. So I went to speak to him afterwards, introduced myself, and from that moment on, man, it's like not only did he know me, which in hindsight trips me out because you're talking about someone who was all over the world, mm -hmm. had his own church, mm -hmm. and as you said, walked the streets here in the, uh, mm -hmm. in the hood in Detroit, and yet he remembered me. Mm -hmm. And so whenever he would preach, you know, and, and the running joke was when he came to town and my mother couldn't find me, she knew I was going to hear Dr. Sampson. Wow. And again, I'm a teenager. I'm a little mm -hmm. kid. Yeah. But he had so caught my attention. And again, for me, you know, you think about Carter Woodson, you become what you behold. And a lot of us are starving for models and mentors. And so to see this man larger than life, brilliant who knew how to make the life of the mind appealing. I mean, that blew my mind. Mm -hmm. And so then, after my, um, my dad died when I was 14, wow. and he came back the next year to do the revival, and I'm sitting on the front row in the balcony, in the balcony, which is way back from where he is in the pulpit. He gets up to give his opening remarks, sees me in the balcony. Not only does he acknowledge my presence, but he starts saying all kind of nice things about me and about me being there. And for someone who's 14, whose world has been torn up yes. by the death of his dad to get acknowledged by someone you look up to, I mean, man, it messed me up. And mm. in the best way, yes. in the best way. And it's like, you know, that was one of those, and I'm gonna talk about it in a few moments, that was one of those healing moments for me to be acknowledged by, to have my name called by someone I revere and look up to when I'm in a season of grief and my world ain't making no sense. Yes. And so, you know, from there, you know, uh, I fast forward, I get in ministry, and I'm always listening to him preach because, again, I'm looking for models, I'm looking for mentors. And the very first time I heard him preach, I'm enamored by his use of poetry, uh, philosophy, uh, illustrations, just doing it all. And mm -hmm. so I said, okay, now that's what I'm going to aspire to do. And so I've spent my ministry aspiring to, you know, do what I the saw work. him model. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, and, and you spoke on a lot of different things. It's, uh, just as I grow, and I, I share, like, the Black Coffee podcast with with Frida, so Frida's always um, somebody I looked up to in the sense of like Frida's just always been so cool, right? And um, and now just in this age, when I think about the relationship that we've grown, mm -hmm. um, and also the relationships that exist in our community, but you spoke to losing a father yeah. and just black men to black men in right. in a in a nation that uh, by design is is built on a, a societal value set. That is not uh, is not accessible to us. Thank it's you. not designed for us to right. to succeed and, and 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 attain to. And people like Reverend Sampson, being someone you can touch, yeah, being intelligent, yeah, uh, having character and value systems that are things that you could characterize and color and grab to 
I could characterize in color and grab to opposing uh, in a time and age when I think of his ascension here in Detroit. Yeah. That 70s, 80s, and 90s. Right. This is the motto of, of, of years of excess, years of, of American abundance, the, the, the ideologies of, uh, of people like, um, I don't know, uh, let's just say, the black millionaire, the, the black enterprise era right. uh, of, of this is what success is. But then the models of what happened with Tabernacle touching the lives of so many people and, and most of the times when people would speak to a Reverend Sampson it would be sometimes through the tragedy of, of someone being murdered or someone dying at a young age or maybe even someone dying at an older age but then him being able to uh, share these stories now I give this long introduction into this question because I wanted to make sure that I gave the temperature of, of it and where you stand today mm -hmm. and pulling from models like a Reverend Sampson as you grow and make your journey uh, in manhood, uh, being a black man in America, traveling so many more places. Um, how does the impact of knowing a Reverend Sampson then um, come into fruition today Yeah, as you make your decisions on um, everything is as... as as real as like, you know, how to uh, disagree with your homeboys or your, your own friends, uh, how to move forward, how to build your own value systems, how to, uh, how to put that right foot in front of the left foot and just keep going and know that it's balanced in, in, in principles we believe in mm -hmm. as opposed to things that have been accepted to me from society. Yeah, yeah, on several levels, number one, I think it's important for me to realize I can't pay him back, but I can pay it forward. Mm. And so I look at all he poured into me, mm -hmm. and there were times, because I fortunately got to know him even more as an adult, as I became an adult, and the thing that killed me was, I'd say, Doc, I wish I could pay you back for all you did for me. He said, you can't pay me back. He said, but you can pay back the next generation. Mm -hmm. So again, for me, it's essential that as I saw him, see me, touch me, inspire me, influence me, I want to make sure I do that for generations coming up behind me. Mm -hmm. I mean, he took the time, as huge as he was, larger than life, yeah, you know, yeah. this titan of a figure, he would take the time to acknowledge a kid, you mm -hmm. know, who's 13, 14 years old, 15 years old. I mean, so for me, that's why Dr. Sampson made it a part of my own spirit where when I go somewhere and I see kids, you know, I mean, listen, I'm taking time out for them because I don't know if there's a kid out there who's been through what I went through, mm -hmm. who just wants to be seen, mm -hmm. you know, acknowledged. You made, a, you made a deep statement earlier about this whole value piece and Eddie Glaw Jr. talks about the value gap in America and that we talk about the achievement gap, wealth, achievement gap, wealth gap, mm -hmm. but bigger than that is the value gap yeah. where some people are valued more than others. Whites mm -hmm. are valued more than blacks. Let's keep it 100. Mm -hmm. And so when you have a Dr. Sampson who again, larger than life, looks at you, acknowledges you, makes you feel that you're somebody, that is chipping away at that value gap. Yeah. And so I've got that responsibility to do that for generations that look up to me. And so, you know, now, and Dr. Sampson, whenever I trip, 
and start thinking about, man, I ain't got time to do this right now. I remember Dr. Sampson made time. And so that's how I translate that. I also translate it by the fact that, you know, Doc was always reading. Mm-hmm. You know, so that mind of his was always fresh, expanding, yeah. growing. And so my thing is, I need to be always reading. I need, mm-hmm. I, I need to do those things which, which inform my mind, which inspire and stretch my mind, because that's what Doc was about. And so then you do that, and as you translate that into life, interacting with people, loving people, and I guess that's the last thing I'll say, you know, uh, it's been said today by Frida that all of us have a doc moment, a doc, exper- a doc story, mm-hmm. and that says a whole lot, mm-hmm. that here's a man who for all intents and purposes did not write a book, but the thing is, he wrote his life on the book of other lives. And that's what it's all about. Jesus never wrote a book, mm-hmm. but evidently he impacted enough lives where those lives then wrote books about his impact yes. on them. Many, many of books. And I would Come argue on. that uh, as, as, as we got the note that you're about to go up, but I would argue it's so funny. I was talking to uh, one of the guys that's, that's labeled as like a nerd, a black dude I follow. And he's like, man, I never really, younger guy, never really got into Star Wars. And I was like, you realize that Star Wars is really a lot of the biblical story, you know? So like so many of these other stories that were impacted from those stories and from yeah. those stories yeah. and from those stories. Yeah. When we think about Good. what a hero is, Good. When we think about what good is, when good. we think about what evil is, when we think about how things characterize and continue in plots, oh man, it's yeah. powerful. And as far as I, I believe my relationship is way closer to a doc and not yeah. you yeah. than it is some of the other people that uh, society deems as I, I feel success. You. Yeah. Thank For you real. so much. Thank you, man. Keep up the great work. Yes, sir. with us Reverend Dr. Frank Thomas, one of the keynote speakers for the Frederick G. Sampson, I think I said something, social activism day today. How are you, doctor? I'm good. How are you all today? We are well. Thank you for joining us. Yes. So we are just going to ask you a few questions um, about what you'll be discussing today and um, your views and opinions on the church and their role in social justice. Okay. Okay, so can you tell us a little bit about your keynote? I just did a keynote um, combining several things. Um, Principally, I wanted to celebrate the ministry of uh, the Reverend Dr. Frederick G. Sampson II, who was a tremendous mentor in my life. And I talked about uh, his ability to inspire uh, by the presentation of a different future than what we typically experience given racism and white supremacy, that the black preacher has uh, reminded us that we were God's children and presented a whole different way of seeing the world from the negativity, the animosity, the hatred that is directed at many African-American people. Uh, by white supremacy, and I talked about moral imagination. Can you tell us what that means? Moral imagination, basically, the simplest way is, it defines how we see people. In other words, can I see you as an equal? So, in white supremacy, it's very difficult for white supremacy to see black people as equal. They can't, in their moral imagination, imagine that we're equal. And when you can't imagine that somebody is equal, then you set up a moral hierarchy where 
you're at the top and they're at the bottom. So I use the example of so many of the policies, for example, the tax cut plan, because many of these folks believe that employers are over employees and the rich are over the poor. It makes sense to them to give millions of dollars of tax breaks to the rich and then make, make the middle and the poor people's taxes, that's only five years. Yeah. So they value what they call the job creators over working people. Mm-hmm. And they, it's, there's no disconnect in that because the way they organize their moral hierarchy, because they can't see employees as equal with employers because job creators are always driving the economy, then they set up a moral hierarchy and that moral hierarchy people are inferior. Black people, so it's whites are over blacks, women are over men, straight is over gays, employers over employees, Christians over non-Christians, America over everybody else, and out of that flows all of these policies that affect us because that's the way they view the world. And black preaching in the black church at its best has always presented a picture of equality. And that's a very different moral picture. And so we, what we have now, I know this is long, a little longer than you intended. Oh, uh, you're fine. You know, what we have is moral bankruptcy. And so, because we have, obviously, in our leadership, because they see a moral hierarchy that is unjust, then they develop policies and so it just flows out to our community. And I think we take a stand in position. No, we believe that everybody's equal. So based on the theory of moral imagination, how do we educate and inform diverse populations um, using the word while maintaining a sense of inclusiveness in order to spark change? That's a great question. Thank you so much. I, so I say that moral imagination has four qualities. The first quality is <clears throat> you envision equality, then you show up with your physical presence. So a lot of people will envision equality and talk about it, but never show up with their physical presence in places of inequality. So the first thing, if, if you really believe in equality and really, I mean, other than just, you know, every church in America says everybody's welcome. And when the reality is some people are not welcome at all. So I say you have to show up. Now, when you, number two, when you show up, if you listen to the people and talk to the people, it will create conditions of empathy. We can exchange stories. We, I, I find out that you're as human as I am. I find out you got you. And once we develop empathy, that motivates me to new actions for peace and justice. See, I'm not going to do peace and justice for anybody that I don't have empathy for and empathy with. So I won't show up. I'll just stay in my church and preach about communities. I won't go to those communities. Or like politicians who make policies for neighborhoods they've never been in. Right. Never, never talk to the residents. Right. But they're pontificating from Washington, for example, and never talk to the people that the policy is affecting. So they, they, they talk equality, but they haven't showed up. When you get there and show up, you'll find and have empathy. Third thing, and I'll make it quick, I'm sorry. The third thing is when you get there and you get involved and you actually start to include people, I think that sermons that include people are more dangerous 
So in some African-American churches, if you include women as equal, or you include gays as equal, you include transgender as equal, you get in a world of trouble. Yeah. Right? Right. Yeah. You get in a world of trouble. Yep. So when you start making new steps toward peace and justice, you get in trouble. Then you need the word of God to undergird you, to sustain you. You need the Hebrew prophets let justice roll down like waters. You need the love yes. of Jesus. You need all of that stuff. Mm-hmm. And then finally, the fourth thing, what I say moral imagination is, then you will use language to lift people, to encourage people, and put people in touch with wonder, mystery, and hope. And so we have, uh, when President Trump did his inaugural address, it was dystopian. Mm-hmm. Excellent description of that. It, it didn't lift yeah. anybody anymore. No, it did not. It didn't encourage anybody. And so I say that when you show up, when you uh, talk with the people, when you do acts of justice and compassion, when you apply the word of God, it's going to lift, it's going to provide hope, it's going to encourage, it's going to make sure that people are, are, are included, for example. And that speech creates new worlds. Yes, words create worlds. Right. Yes. And then once the, the world is created, people will act out the world that they have been shown. So if you show people a dystopian world and divided and one people against another people and immigrants are our problem and get them out of here, they're animals and all this stuff, that's how people act. Yeah, I think that's very evident in what's happening right now. That's yeah. such a good way to put it because since everybody talks about since we've had this current president and how things have just appeared so much worse, but he's setting this the standard for for what's acceptable. When we had the president before him, that was not the standard and it was not like this. Not to say bad things didn't happen, but right, right. exactly that. Exactly. Yeah. So uh, there's a phrase that we do or become what our what our leaders show us mm-hmm. that we are. Right? So I you know I even push it a little further. I, I, I think that Donald Trump is a creation of an American mindset. So how do you become a reality star, TV star, and you become a president? Because we have an over-glorification in the culture, it's called the idolatrous imagination, of celebrities. So the classic example is we will pay, I love LeBron James. I think he's a wonderful role model for African-American men. Yes, 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 yes. I, I think just wonderful. We give LeBron $250 million to dunk a basketball, but we'll underpay a teacher. Yep. And that teacher has, at some point, like we as recently, put their lives on the line yes. to protect those students. Yes. It's and a system of misplaced values. Exactly. So I call it the idolatrous imagination because values flow. And again, what is, do you see people as equal? You get a moral hierarchy. That hierarchy has values and it flows out of. And so our idolatrous imagination overemphasis on celebrities and all this stuff creates the environment for him to be elected. Yeah. Yeah, yeah I couldn't put it better than that. That's exactly, exactly what has been produced. Now, I lay this out in a book called How to Preach a Dangerous Sermon. I'm going to bring you a flower to it. Okay. Well, we look forward to that. How to Preach a Dangerous Sermon by Reverend Dr. Frank Thomas. We want to thank you so much for joining us.
Thank you all. Thank you. Yes. I enjoy, I enjoy my time. So, if you, yeah, you know, any, you. anytime. If y'all got anybody, y'all interviewing, and I walk by here, grab we'll me. We'll come with you again. Yes, we will. We'll, we'll, come back, we'll come back with part two. Okay, we'll, yes. We'll, we'll figure out something else to talk about. Yes, yes we will. <laughs> Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you, sir. So we have with us Carla Mackey a student here at the Ecumenical Theological Seminary who will be graduating this June with her doctorate. Congrats, congrats. Thank you. And can you tell us your um, relationship with Dr. Sampson? Well, I met Dr. Sampson at the post office when I was working there in the, oh, I think the mid-80s. And, and he came to speak at Affirmative Action Week, and I was on the Affirmative Action Week committee and so I was supposed to introduce him, but of course, because he's Dr. Sampson, everybody wanted to meet him, so I got reassigned. And after he spoke, and he was, of course, amazing, um, I had the opportunity to go up and introduce myself. And he says, um, hey girl, um, what church do you go to? I said, well, um, I go to the Church of the Yellow Pages. He said, and where would that be? I said, well, on Friday evening, I go to the Yellow Pages and I open it up and I find a church to go visit because I had just recently moved back to Detroit from Atlanta and had lived in Atlanta during the child murder. So I had a, a real hesitation about taking my children where the church would uh, say your children had to go over here to Children's Church while you went up in the sanctuary. I'm like, uh, no, that would be a no. And so he said, well, come on over to TAB. So that Sunday, my children and I went over to TAB, and we never left. Wow. That's amazing. And so did he inspire you to... Oh, what did he inspire oh, oh, my God. How did he okay. inspire you? Yeah, so, so Doc was... I, I would always say he's the person's person, okay. that he believed and, and embodied personal relationships. So, you know, Doc would walk to church sometime from, from their house to Tabernacle on Beachwood and Milford and meet people. So what I found out is I could go hang out with Doc mm. when he was walking in different places of the city or he would meet people at McDonald's at 5.30 in the morning and have coffee and just talk. And wherever he was, people would gather around. Mm. I mean, for me, he embodied what Jesus said we should be doing. And so because he was so personable, um, we were able to, I was able to build that relationship. And in building that relationship, he got to know what my passion is. And my passion is working with people in the street and so I'm also a clinical therapist. And Tell us a little more about what it is you do. So um, right now I work in mental health on, on the, the sit-in-the-office side. Mm -hmm. But for 40 years I've been on the front line working with women who live in shelters, with children who are in foster care and aging out of foster care, with people with HIV and AIDS, with folks coming out of the prison system, with elderly, with homeless. So I've kind of crossed all of the systems of care, mm -hmm. and I believe in street ministry. Mm -hmm. So that taught me how to minister to people in the street and not just um, use my clinical skills, 
but to invite them to Jesus as well. So that the church move beyond the four walls. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. So let me ask you, in the spirit of activism and um, embodying everything that he was and he taught, do you feel, what do you believe is the church's role in community activism? Well, see, first of all, the church is in the street. So I absolutely come from the philosophy that everybody that sits in a building that they call the church has to be reached to let them know that the church is also in the street. We are the church. The church comes from out of the street into a building to, to, to come together. And so we have to come, and I've been listening to one of my favorite of his sermons called Beyond the Pulpit. He preached in 1998 that he talks about the fact that it's not standing behind the pulpit and proclaiming, but it's being outside and beyond the pulpit to take the word of Jesus to the street and embody what Jesus said, because it's not about me, it's, it's about the people. So you believe that Christians were meant to be um, social justice warriors? Absolutely. That's what Jesus was. <laughs> yes, it is. Yes, it is. See, I, I, I absolutely believe, first of all, if we understood that Jesus was not that guy sitting behind the pulpit, sitting behind the table, Jesus walked all over the, the, the world, all over the country. And he ministered to people on the corner, you know, in their house walking down the roadside. So we ought to be doing the same thing. It's true. That is absolutely true. Do you feel that social activism um, within the church is becoming more of a social trend, or do you feel like it is um, organically and authentically simply gaining momentum? Well, I I'm hoping that it's g gaining momentum. I've always believed that that we, the church, need to be on the front line, that, that those who say we walk by faith and, ha and are strengthened by the Holy Spirit and have been purposefully designed to be out here in the front making a difference and being the change agent should embrace that social activism. That's what church is. That's who Jesus was. And that, so I think... And as I've talked to some, some younger folk, um, they are ready. Our young people are ready. Our, our young people are not wanting, they don't want to be bench warmers. No. And so we need to get with the program with the young people and take the young people's energy and infuse the church with showing young people, guess what? This is what we know from a historical standpoint as elders. And we need your energy because you can run further than I can right now. <laughs> you know, I just like to keep it real. Absolutely. <laughs> In addition to connecting with younger people, what are other ways you feel um, the church can demonstrate tangible uh, actions for being change agents? So first of all, the church has to become transparent. We have to admit what we can and what we cannot do. And what we cannot do is we cannot be silent. No. We, 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 have, we have to admit, first of all, that we are human and that each and every one of us, as the scripture says, we're all sinners saved by grace. So my mantra is, guess what? We all walked in, in this, on the same ground. None of us descended from heaven 
and came to a location. Right. And so we need to get with the program that we all walked in on the same ground, which makes us equal. Yes. And as equals, maybe I've been on the ground longer, longer than the next person. So this is my experience, but that does not negate the experience of someone younger, because Timothy was young. Yes, he was. You know, and so we need to embrace the ideas and the concerns of young people yes. and, and infuse and collaborate them with elders who have open minds and open hearts to lead that activism to a place where people get served and that relationships get built and that you know that if... As we, as we say in our little circle, sometimes you got to get your hand spanked, <laughs> and sometimes you're spanking my hand, and sometimes I'm spanking yours, yeah. because we haven't reached that medium of understanding. But we have to be transparent enough to say, you know what, I didn't understand what you were saying, because you were speaking in the coded language of your generation right. that I don't understand. But this is how we say it in my generation. So now that the air is clear, let us move out. Yes. Before you get started, this is Sean Thomas, and he works with the tradition. What? I'm Sean Thomas. There you I go. Work with, I have been working with Frida for a little over almost two decades now. All right. Okay. Yep. So go ahead and ask your question. So, because you um, seem to have been truly inspired by the life and teachings of Dr. Sampson, um, how or what do you believe the church's role? is uh, in participating in community activism? Okay, so let me ask a question first. Okay. What do you mean by community activism? So for all of the injustices that um, congregations, which are predominantly African-American, experience from police brutality, economic injustice, how do you feel the church's role, according to the Bible, the Word, the Scripture, what do you feel their role is, or, or should they play a role in? In helping to rectify some of those things. So one, yes, I do feel that they should be playing a role. Mm -hmm. Church should most definitely play, have a role. Um, I'm feeling that it should just be because of the way the the church um, community itself is in Detroit, mm -hmm. um, being so heavily pop heavily populated throughout the city, uh, I feel that they should have a a voice of just right and wrong mm -hmm. uh, to. have a deeper conversation um, in regards to 
morals. What does that conversation look like for you as an African-American male? It looks like, um, what does it look like? It looks like, um, that's an interesting question. What would that look like? I think it looks like, you know, in addition to teaching the Bible, it looks like making sure that you're having conversations or there is a ministry set up to have conversations um, about issues like parenting. Mm -hmm. um, um, I want to say, like, cultures, understanding co different cultures, um, so understanding different cultures to, to bridge those gaps? Yeah. Um, I'm really not good at interviews. <laughs> You're, You're doing, doing fine. fine. You're fine. Um, yeah, because there's a lot of misconceptions. Okay. And, um, and the misconceptions are there because of the, um, just by the definition of the word, by the ignorance on it. Um, and just to educate people on the differences and um, and really realizing that we, although there are differences, we are not that much different. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That's an important point yeah. to any conversation. So many differences arise because people just don't understand similarities and hone in on their differences mm -hmm. more so than things that tie them together to be the same. That's really important. It is. Yeah. So what do you feel, um, or, you know, let me take a step back. Do you feel like your pastoral leadership, church administration is or should behave in a political activist capacity? Is your pastor also your political activist, or are those separate? Is he there simply to preach scripture and deliver sermons, or is he also there to connect with the issues facing his congregation and then take actionable steps? Most definitely the latter. He, um, I feel that with the platform that preachers have. I don't so much think that they should take a complete political um, stance, but... We're good. <laughs> okay. So most definitely the latter. I don't really think they should take a political stance. Um, I don't think that's a political but I think that they um, how, how do you feel, how do you feel um, Reverend Sampson Reverend Dr. Sampson um, made that difference in your life like how did he connect with the community and with your with you in that way that sparked change even personally Dr. Sampson, 
met you where you were mm -hmm. and brought you along with him. He didn't stand outside or down the street and wait for you to come to him. Okay. He met you where you were and brought you along the journey with him. Like Jesus. <laughs> okay. Talk about being a true disciple. Like Jesus, yeah. yeah. He meets you where you were. He, he isn't waiting, you know, for you to perfect yourself. He will be there right where you are. Thank you. So how else um, did the life of Dr. Sampson inspire you? Or can you share a personal experience or a story that maybe meant a lot mm -hmm. to you? Wow. Um, so many. So many just... The one that stands out maybe. Yeah. Amongst the rest. Let me see. Take your time. He's going to do all the editing to this. So. Let me see. Yeah. I might have a note in here. There Let's you see. go. I don't, but... Well, you know what? Yes, I do. In my... Email. Mm -hmm. I was listening to just one sermon. In my email uh, signature, mm -hmm. there is a quote from Dr. Sampson. Okay. And it says, never let anyone un-you you. Hmm. What does that mean? To me, it, it means that be true to yourself. Be consistent with yourself. And um, it's a conscious effort that when you interact with others that you don't allow them to um, take you to a space that's not of you. Yeah. That's you know? so important. And you know when you've, you know when you've entered that space. Mm -hmm. And that's why it's a conscious effort that you have to make sure that you're conscious about it because there are some people who don't intentionally do it, but there are some people who are intentionally trying to make that happen. So it's a reminder to always live your most authentic life and be your best consistent self mm -hmm. and not allow distractions or mm -hmm. disruptions from life and people to remove you from your path. Mm -hmm. I think that's important. Because God made you to be the way you are for a reason, for a distinct purpose. Mm -hmm. And so it's important to remember that. I like that. Say it one more time. Mm -hmm. Don't let anyone un-you you. Don't let anyone un-you you. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. All right now. <laughs> That's a good word. Yes. <laughs> Thank you Every so much. You're welcome. Thank you. Thank you. We really appreciate it. All right, Camila, can you introduce yourself for us? Sure, my name is Camila Omari. And you are a mentee of Frida? I am. I'm a mentee of Frida Sampson. I also grew up um, in Tabernacle Missionary Baptist Church, led by Dr. Sampson. Yeah. 
And can you tell us a little bit about um, how that experience has inspired you, how he has inspired you, how being a part of that ministry, that congregation um, has changed your life? And I absolutely can. So um, growing up in Tabernacle under the leadership of Dr. Sampson really set my spiritual foundation. And it taught me several things. It taught me that intellectual development is not separated from spiritual development. And so I grew up learning that those things had a relationship. And I also grew up having my creativity really fostered and community service fostered because Frida ran a commission on creative expression. And we did several events with the church, one of them being African-American Male Spirituality Week with some of the speakers here today. Um, Reverend Frank Thomas, Freddie Haynes, both of them participated in those weeks. So I always had the opportunity to volunteer. So that's really the role that TAB has played in my life and along with the foundation and Frida and Dr. Sampson. Mm -hmm. So you said there's a connection between um, intellectual, uh, intellectual basically maturity and spirituality. Yes. Can you speak a little more about that? So one of the wonderful things about Dr. Sampson is, you know, he was a uh, well-educated man. So he always brought Shakespeare and other philosophers into his sermons along with his mastery of theology. And so, Okay, wait, he brought Shakespeare into a sermon? Absolutely. <laughs> what? Absolutely. Shakespeare, Aristotle, and um, in Frida's book, you'll see a lot of his pastor's pens, mm-hmm. and his pastor's pens usually will include a quote, like there's one with a quote from Theodore Roosevelt. So... Growing up hearing that and hearing him bring those things in, it's like, okay, there was no disconnect for me between the development of the mind and the development of the spirit because he always took things and wove them together. That's so important. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, just speaking more to that, so you have the intellectual side, but we've talked to several people today and everybody there's one consistent theme is that he met the people wherever they were absolutely and can you just speak to more about you you were telling us earlier you're a social worker yes I trade mm-hmm. and so more about like how seeing that influence you and your your choices your career goals things like that right absolutely so one of the things that we did a lot of under um, Dr. Sampson's leadership is we did a lot of community service programs and I know there are pictures throughout the symposium, and you can see he was was a tall man. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, growing up seeing him, I used to think he was a giant, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, But whenever we would go out into the community, it did not matter if it was a dignitary or a homeless person. He spoke to everyone he knew with a genuine interest as to what was going on in their life. And so I witnessed that growing up, and we always had different um, events where we would go out and feed the homeless, Um, deliver coffee and like hygiene products to the homeless and then every Thanksgiving um, the Commission on Creative Expression would also go out to nursing homes, foster homes and bring people in and we did a Thanksgiving dinner and he promoted those kinds of activities all of the time and so the nervousness I never had when it came to serving my community but it was also something that I felt like was part of my responsibility Mm -hmm. was to do something to serve my community so when it came time for me to make a decision about a career I always thought about well what can I do to help serve my community and social work was one of those things so as your spiritual father he strengthened your moral obligation to your community absolutely and moral obligation and also a personal discipline with my own faith Mm -hmm. and 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 learning about faith and 
having your your faith tested. So those things were very just natural to me as I grew up. <laughs> yeah, I was very. I feel very fortunate to have grown up in Tab under Dr. Sampson and having Frida as a men- mentor. Mm-hmm. That's awesome. Um, just one thing, because I, I think they're letting think, out. They're okay. letting out. Okay. But if you have one thing that you would that you learned and interpreted, and then you want to then put it out into the world that you want to pass on through you from Dr. Sampson, what would that be? I think the thing for me would be to maintain the vertical connection. He always said that. And that vertical connection is the thing that I understood. Okay, God is that vertical connection. And as long as you maintain that and you invest in that, then you'll see the results of it in your life. Absolutely. You know, through the process and through the journey. There was this one other thing he said, just really quickly. Um, He did a sermon um, that he said, don't get caught in the hallway. And essentially what he was saying was that you don't want to get caught in the process of things and that remember there's always an exit sign at the end of a hallway. And so in different journeys we have in life, sometimes we're in the midst of a process and we get caught up in the process not remembering that there is an end to it and there's a light at the end of the tunnel. So Keep moving through the tunnel. Keep moving. All right. Mm-hmm. Well, we really, really appreciate having you here. Well, thank it's you for wonderful. having me. Yes, thank you. This has been I don't want to say this. Say your name for us so I don't say it wrong. It's Camila. 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 Yes. We appreciate you. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you. Thanks. Oh, that was fun. <laughs> we have with us right now Dr. Deborah Smith Pollard joining for the symposium honoring Dr. Reverend Dr. Sampson. And so can you just tell us a little bit about your experience with him? You were saying that he married you and your husband. Yes, in fact, um, my husband is Basil, and he's a Sunday school teacher there. Um, And when we got married 21 years ago, before we did, we have to go through, I think it was six weeks Um, And they were not one-hour sessions. I'm pretty sure we were always there at least an hour and a half to two hours. (laughs) And um, But there are some things that he taught us during that that I can use to this day. mm -hmm. And he said, on those days when you think, like, he said, you might want to win the battle, but you don't want to lose the war, which meant don't lose your marriage. So there are days we pull back. So, yeah, we had a great experience with him. So his teachings are lasting. Oh, they last. <laughs> yes, on August 2nd, we will be married 21 years. So, yeah, we've all held on to what he told us. Black <laughs> love is a beautiful thing. Yeah. So um, we've been talking to several different attendees and speaking with them about his social activism and his um, relatability and just being a people person and being able to use that to make change in the community. So I I have a question. As far as congregations and churches and their role in the social activism movement, do you feel like it's the place of the church to be a part of community activism? Absolutely, absolutely. Um, You know, when we talk about activism, Let's just talk about, let's say, the civil rights movement. I always have to remind my students, I'm a professor in my other life, that these were 
preachers. These were pastors, evangelists. These are people connected to the church. And the reason they could bring such large groups together, says one, they had these buildings, but two, because many of them believed that the church had to have a role in making a changes in the community. Um, um, but I also point out that there are, there were then and there continues to be um, those individuals who felt that the church should only preach um, Jesus saves. Absolutely, that is what the church should preach, but there are so many other things to preach. Um, just as we heard today, this is about prophetic uh, ministry, um, and prophetic ministry not only foretells, um, but it also tells us to come forward and do something about it. So we can't just say that um, Jesus came to set the captives free. What are you going to do to help set, get to set to, the captives yes, free? There's uh -huh. an accountability that yes. lies within the, the members of the community and the, of the, congreg the congregation is the community. Absolutely. And so these um, churches who have ministries in prisons um, who support um, those who are in need, I mean, whether it's a, a Monday through Friday outreach to the community where they get food and friendship uh, or whatever kinds of things that the church can do um, to reach out to those who are in other countries, whether it's, it's a, a Haiti going through yet another um, um, environmental you know, tragedy or whatever. That's, the church should be in the middle of that kind of thing. In fact, they should lead that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. So speaking about um, environmental injustice, do you believe that there is a connection between environmental and economic injustice? And if so, how can the church and the clergy um, create change? Environmental and... Economic. Oh, absolutely. Um, just, I think yesterday in the car, I was reminded about um, just how many times they can put pollutants or different kinds of silos that pollute the environment in communities where people of color reside, that people who don't look like me um, would never be allowed, allowed, I will say that, to have that. Not to mention things like, uh, oh, shutting off the water for somebody who has a bill of $100 where somebody else, a company that owes $50,000, yes. um, just allows to get a, like, a, oh, just pay that when you get ready. So absolutely there's a tie between these things. And as Detroiters, we personally are connected to uh, Flint. Absolutely. And, you know, had that been a community are, of a different color. And there are, we, um, at, on my campus, in my department, um, and also another department I'm with, um, African and African American Studies, um, we reached out to a particular school, I will not name it, but it's a, 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 a black school here in Detroit, but we found out that the kids did not have water. A lot of their homes didn't have water, which made it a little challenging for them to come to school and be clean. So we, you know, put together a little drive and everything um, so we could take them some um, undergarments, you know, some deodorants and things like that. Um, but we know that churches do that as well. And I'm just saying those things are tied together wherever we are. We are the church. So even if we're not in the midst of the sanctuary, wherever we are, we should be reaching out. Um, I know you you're do a lot of uh, teaching as well as teaching the students. Mm -hmm. um, what is it, what are some of the things that, based on just the things that you learned from Dr. Sampson and just his church and that community, what are some of the things that you then impart upon your students just to 
continue that action, like continue the desire, like you obviously have a desire to continue to affect change. And what are some of the things that you tell the students so that message gets passed on to them? One of the things I tell them is that we often think that it takes something big to make a difference. Sometimes it can be something as small as buying somebody some socks. You know, we often pass by these individuals who are on the street you go, oh my gosh, you're just asking for money again. You have no idea what that person has actually gone through. Um, and so maybe when there's that big sale at Macy's that they always have every other day, <laughs> just buy up a bunch of socks, a bunch of mittens when it's cold. And you can pass them out. It doesn't always have to be something big. But just be aware, be in the moment, and be willing to reach out to someone because you just never know how that one small thing could make a difference in someone's life. Well, thank you so much. We really, really appreciate you thank having you. me here. Thank like, you. It's been, it's been amazing. Oh, thank you. It's very nice to meet both of you. Thank you. Thank you so much. So we have with us Mr. Stanley Walden. Yes. Who has been or who was the organist for Reverend Dr. Sampson for 23 years? Correct. Okay. And can you tell us a little bit about um, your relationship with him and what that was like being the musician? For the church, for as long as you were. I I need to start before the relationship. Okay, there we go. There we go. I was I was get the origin singing in the choir <laughs> okay. at another church. Okay. And someone came up to me after that service and said, "Why are you singing in the choir here when we need an organist at our church?" <laughs> and it turned out that they needed an organist at at Tabernacle. Okay. I am one who. I can't just work in a church to work or to be paid. I, I got to be able to worship. So I went over to Tabernacle about maybe 10 minutes to 11 to see what it was all about. And I couldn't get in. <laughs> the church was packed. There were no seats on the, on the, uh, the first level. So I had to go downstairs in, in the hall and listen. And he got to preaching, and I, it got to the point that I, I said, y'all have to let me in, because I have to see who this is. <laughs> who is this man that can preach like this? <clears throat> and so then I was introduced to him, and it, was, it turned out that I was a musician, and uh, I had to audition. Okay. Okay. And knowing Tabernacle as it was, and I was following a really great organist. So I went home and practiced this little Bach prelude and fugue. That was my audition, prelude and fugue. And and it 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 went over well. Doctor Samson looked at me and said, "Can you play Sweet Hour of Prayer?" (laughs) (laughs) That's the real thing. And from that point on, I was the church organist. Okay. And then it turned out. People who go to Tabernacle know me as my man Stan. Okay. <laughs> that's that's how, how he referred to me as my, my man, man Stan. Stan. Yeah. Right. So, okay, so can you tell us one of your most memorable stories or experiences? Dr. Sampson never claimed to be a musician and or a singer. Okay. But he knew music. Okay. And it was just amazing that he would pray or he would be into some kind of a meditative mood mode 
and I'm playing behind him. But we always ended up together. Wow. We always ended at a cadence because he had a musical ear and he knew when I was getting ready to end. I knew where he was in terms of that prayer. And, and it just, people kept saying, how can you all do that? And it was nothing that we ever talked about. But it was seamless. Yes. It was seamless. It just worked. Okay. So that's something new. He had a, a musical side to him. Yeah. Okay. So aside from simply being the organist, you said that you can't just be in a um, place of worship and not worship, not be able to worship. You, you, or sorry, and you can't just work. You can't just be the organist. You I have, have to, to be, be able, able to, worship. to worship. So what is it like? Um, and now let me, let me tell you why I say that. Okay. Before I went to Tabernacle, I, for six months I went to another denomination. Okay. And I, I played, the, we started, that church started at exactly 11 o'clock. And about 10 minutes to 12, I was in the parking lot saying, mm, now where can I go to church? <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my goodness. So that when I, I just wasn't getting anything yeah. out of that church, that's why I said. You were being fed. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, right. I had to go you somewhere where I can. hungry. And he fed me. <laughs> He fed me very well. Okay. So, all right. So that's what I was about to say. Moving from not just being the organist, being a musician, but actually being a, a worshiper and feeling like you are benefiting spiritually. And I have, I have to say that I, I stayed... Well, I didn't join... I played the organ at the church for 10 years before I joined. Okay. And part of that was... Am I joining the minister or am I joining the church? Mm. And it was like, if he left, would I stay? Mm. That's important. And I finally decided, yeah, this is, this is my church. I like this church. This is my so tribe. These was, are my people. It was just a good, it was a good marriage between him, me, and the church. Okay. Yeah. So what did you like the most about being a part of that family? What did I like most of? I was accepted by not only the church family, I was accepted by the Samson family. Okay. He, he brought me into his house. Okay. His wife and I, who, his wife was a musician. Oh, wow. Okay. Mrs. Samson was a musician. So we, we had a lot to talk about. And then I just became the big brother to Fred and Fred. <laughs> okay. That's awesome. So when we've been talking to everybody, we've been kind of wrapping our interviews with, like, if there's one thing, and it's hard, most people have, a, it takes a second, but if there's one thing, one word that um, Reverend Dr. Sampson gave you that you want to continue to put out in the world through yourself, what, what word would that be? I know he had a lot of them. You know, and I can't give you one word, okay. but I can give you a phrase or that phrase, he used. Yes. Uh, and we, we've heard several of the phrases from people who have presented earlier. But he used the term somewhere along the line, don't, it is better to under-promise and over-deliver than to over-promise and under-deliver. Yes. <laughs> and I've never, ever forgotten Words that. of wisdom, words to live by, for mm -hmm. sure. Yeah, for sure. We thank you so much. Thank you for joining My us. Man <laughs> we had a great time. My pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. Alright. We have right now Dr. Byron Douglas, who has been a long time member 
of the Tab family and met Dr. Reverend Dr. Sampson when he arrived when he was 12, 13 years old. Is that correct? That's correct. I've um, been attending Tabernacle since I was about two or three years old. Uh, that's my, my old neighborhood. I grew up on Van Court and Cobb. The church is right there on Beechwood, Milford, so it's just a couple of blocks away. And so growing up in that church family, what was um, Dr. Sampson like for you? What was the church environment like for you? Well, um, the church environment was very positive from the standpoint of um, Tabernacles. I don't, know, I don't know if it was unique from the standpoint of black churches, but you had everybody there. You had every income level, every profession. You know, you had people who worked in the plant, the people who were judges, uh, physicians, etc. So you were in that environment. Um, Dr. Sampson, when I first met him, I was very open, uh, very, uh, very open to young people, and he didn't mind you questioning, and he didn't mind you exploring intellectually and uh, figuring out who you were, what was the world about. Um, he didn't have a problem with you questioning Christianity. And um, there was also an element of uh, uh, black consciousness, um, not just with Dr. Samson, but several people within, within the congregation. And uh, you know, I'm heavy into uh, history and culture, especially as a black psychologist. So you know, that, that worked well for me. So growing up as an African-American male, adolescent, how did that freedom and openness to truly explore religion and self help you cope and navigate adolescence? Um, well, given that, that neighborhood at the time, um, like I said, you had so many people who you can get involved with, who had an interest in you, who showed an interest. And then especially in the church, uh, especially the laity, you had people who, um, you know, they watched me grow up. And so there were people who were very supportive. Okay. You know, Dr. Sampson uh, was very supportive uh, from, like I said, I'm 12, 13 years old. I'm, I'm getting through junior high, that's what we called it back in the day. Right. <laughs> you know, going from junior high to high school and trying to figure out if I wanted to go to college. Mm -hmm. And wound up at Howard University. And at the time, um, I used to tell people, I used to get, you know, ghetto scholarships where this old sister, this old brother put $5, $10 in your pocket, mm -hmm. you know, as you're trying to go to school. And then Tabernacle had established a... Uh, scholarship program, I was able to uh, avail myself of that to the point where I've been on the scholarship committee myself for maybe 30 years now. Wow. And uh, was chairperson for a number of years. So I went from getting a scholarship to uh, helping to distribute scholarships. So you feel like the resources and the support provided by him and that, that church family and that congregation helped shape maybe... It played an integral part in my life, okay. you know, no doubt. Um, like I say, there are people 
still there who I grew up with. You know, um, families that, like I said, I've known nearly all my life. And so that's, that's, been, that's been very helpful, you know, very positive. You know, you got people that you went from elementary to high school with. Some of us were even at Howard together. You know, so, and then once I came back home, um, been teaching Sunday school at Tabernacle since, since 85. And um, anybody who knows me and has been in my class know that I deal with um, social, cultural, historical, um, racial issues from a um, psychological and spiritual perspective, you know, in the Sunday school class. And when you look at this symposium, you know, we're talking about, you know, social justice, uh, equality, et cetera. Um, you can't deal with history and not address those types of issues. So one thing that we've been um, consistently asking everybody that we get a chance to um, talk to is uh, it's obvious that Dr. Sampson and the culture that he was able to present and kind of foster, how that lives on and continues to impact the community. And is there any, like, a particular phrase or words or things that stuck with you in particular that you then attend to continue to pass on to the next generation of people in this community? Um, probably there is no shame in intellectualism. Um, respect everybody. You know, respect the culture, uh, respect the people. Uh, doesn't matter what one's status is in life. Um, be open to showing love and respect and support, you know, to everyone. I think that was one of the things that he did. Um, didn't make distinctions from the sense of, all right, this person's from this family this person's from that family or this person has this particular background is that everybody uh, was accepted and everybody in my opinion was in an environment that um, supported growth here we grow yeah <laughs> well it's been awesome talking to you today um, Dr. Douglas we really appreciate it Thank you so much for giving us your time. Very welcome. Asia and Brianna. Asia right? and Brianna. All right. All right. Peace, ladies. Thank you. Okay. We have Reverend Ezra Tillman with us right now, and he is going to be discussing, in part, um, the Flint water crisis and the connection between church engagement and community involvement as it pertains to both racial inequality and environmental inequality and injustice. Can you tell us a little bit about what you've been doing as far as um, your, church your church community and the community outside of your church as far as the Flint water crisis? Yes, my name is Ezra Tillman, pastor of the First Trinity Missionary Baptist Church in Flint, Michigan. Um, our church is a multicultural uh, church as well as a well-blended church. And uh, for the most part, because Flint is a city that has been built by baby boomers, it's an um, aged city, 
Um, our first concern was how could we help the community? Um, a lot of people only see their works outside the churches if it's evangelism. And that, of course, is to perceive that if you go out, someone's going to come in versus this uh, effort to say in a crisis, we want to make sure we're doing something for humanity. And the whole goal was the outreach perspective. And so uh, in doing that, um, we didn't have the hustle and bustle and the strength, but we had to finance. The church did well as a tithing church. And so we wanted to commit and pair with someone who was doing the work. And so initially, us getting started was a uh, another small ministry called um, Mission of Hope. Okay. And uh, this particular uh, mission, small, not really funded, was getting maybe like 70 to 100 bottles of water out to mental prostitutes and things of that nature. Uh, was it funded? And we saw them on uh, Rachel Maddow uh, show one day, and um, just kind of troubled me overnight. And so I had a conversation with my wife about it, and we was like, I was like, I got to do something. So I got up early. Um, that, that day, maybe like a Thursday morning, I called some of the deacons I want to meet with them. I said, I want to go buy some water and let's go help this mission because they're already doing the work. So it's not hard for us. You know, I'm not trying to get a rally team together. He's already doing it. Right. Let's pair with them so we can make sure that ministry gets the water to people needs. And so upon doing so, it has opened the floodgates because we didn't consider that the water crisis not only affected uh, people outside our church, of course, it affects people in your church. But when you don't have an eye for that and when people don't say that and people don't let it be known of their needs, you assume things are well because you don't go home with them. Right. So um, we purchased water for that mission and then we brought water back. And from that day to this day, we've been a water hub. And that led to our um, environmental justice rally that we held uh, with uh, Russell Simmons and with Dr. Jamal Bryan and Pedro Parks. And it opened the floodgates for churches and organizations across the country to flood water into Flint. And so that's been our blessing uh, to this day to keep reaching and helping the community uh, as we speak. So when you began um, supplementing Mission Hope with water, did you see you all uh, expanding and growing the way that it has? No, no. And I was fearful to get involved because, um, you know, you have so many different things on your plate anyway. And my position was I was a new pastor to the city coming to a very prominent church, following a legacy pastor, and all of the stress and strains, just church work was enough, let alone to think about what impact it would be to carry a burden of the community that their need was so great and not knowing what that would look like. Uh, but it was definitely a God move because before we even got back to the church, literally, from driving from the north side to the south side, um, it was like three, four phone calls from NBC, MSNBC. From I'm telling you, from some. Uh, oh my goodness! <laughs> I, I don't even know how it got out. And then Mission of Hope tweeted back out to Rachel Maddow, first trendy, first to respond. And, wow! And it trended on Google and everything else <laughs> for for so long. And then that just spent across the country. So we are we we are very pleased that um, we heard God's voice. And responding to this day, we have any shame on us. Um, everything has been provided for us to do the best we can to help the community. That's awesome. That is awesome. So, um, going forward, where do you see? Hold on, I'm gonna give one second. <laughs> Okay. 
think they're done with the announcements there. Um, just so today's focus um, with a lot of the people we've sat down with has been just about community engagement and social activism and obviously the stuff that you, the things that you've been able to do, um, you know, that's high level, like right in your face, you know, feet on the ground, let's move and really affect change in this community, whereas a lot of times it's a little more subtle. Like this is very demonstrative, like this is a big thing to do. But going, um, going forward, what are the things that you and your congregation are currently, um, you know, what, what are you implementing going forward? Because as most of us know, being here, that this is not a crisis that has ended. That's right. Yeah. So I would just, can you speak a little to, you know, what you guys are continuing to do? Have your efforts, like, ramped up? Are they, the, you know, are they staying consistent? Are they holding strong? Even as all the MB, um, MSNBC, as all the reporters leave, what are the things that you guys are continuing to, to do? And are you expecting any further federal aid? Well, in this case, um, we're praying for federal aid, uh, but our efforts have all been donation and from our own personal sacrifice, and that has been the blessing of it because um, in this second resurgence of us being up on the forefront and back again on the front line is because a lot of the particular churches there were funded by other organizations as the food bank and et cetera. So when they pulled out, it shut down all those particular sites, and then we were the only one because really our donations came from um, givers. We've been sustained through uh, partnerships with um, the Progressive National Baptist Convention, with the American Baptist, with uh, Lock Care Reform Mission Board, uh, with mission teams coming in to provide water and take water to homes and uh, things of that nature. So that has been working. Our long-term goal is to um, um, open a uh, community health center um, called Revive Community Health Center. That's been our, our goal. And, of course, the way the setup is you have to raise the money first and build it. Then they say it's clear, which, you know, that's like impossible <laughs> almost around with black folks. And, right, you know, yes. you know, we got to see some plans. Yeah, and we right, got to see some yes. demographics, right? Yes. And so it's very hard. However, some people have committed. And we have been thankful for the people in the East Coast and in the South that has really been socially connected to our story because they get better reports of our condition in Flint than we do. Oh, yeah. yeah. You know, because the local... Uh, media has uh, been tampered with and so they cover what they want to cover. So even people living in Flint don't know the condition they own water and D.C. would know before we would know. So uh, thankful for that particular piece. People have continued to uh, raise the funds and send it in so we can sustain what we have. Well, um, just, yeah. Because I see we're getting ready to start here, so we don't want to hold you up any any longer. Just if there's any um, you know parting things, we've been ending all of our segments here with uh, if there was any particular time or things um, that Dr. Reverend Sampson really put forth that really any stuck word with you, or phrases, any words or phrases that really stuck with you, or just overall, you know things about his mission that you want to continue to perpetuate in yours? I, I think the uh, profile of this particular preacher is bigger than life. Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, that's one of the things about being in Detroit and being raised in this particular area. You had awesome preachers, but they had their own craft, their own style. And sometimes you take for granted being in an area with so many different gifts, you didn't get a chance to get to them. Mm. I always heard of the legacy and the style and the mm. poetic, you know, uh, utterances and the style, you know, how he brought forth his messages, whatever, but have the chance to, to meet him. But, you know, I think just his 
his style and his shadow of ministry definitely speaks to this generation. And as we speak on this context of social justice, it's loud and clear because it's clear now that the stature of his type is not really present. No. And that's one of the things about why I understand my position and calling is needed in Flint because it's uh, not likened to another. And if that voice is not there, then it's so many other things that are not being addressed from our context. Well, we really appreciate you thank sitting you so down much. with us well, today. Thank you so much, ladies. Thank I appreciate you. you. Thank right. you. Have a wonderful day. You thank too. you. You All too. Right. Remember to like, share, subscribe, and always listen on Stitcher, Google Play, Apple Store, and Spotify. You're listening to the Detroit is Different Podcast Network.